Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the Scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for August 29th through September 4th, 2022. This is covering Proverbs 1 through 4, 15 through 16, 22, and 31, and also Ecclesiastes 1 through 3 and 11 through 12. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the Scriptures. Scriptures, you're looking so poetic today. And so wise. <laughs> and now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 41 minutes, 41 seconds. Well, how poetic. Indeed. And what would that be daily? 5 minutes, 57 seconds. Nice. But John, what if you wanted to read all of Proverbs and all of Ecclesiastes? What would that be? Well, you could do that. It would take 2 hours, 20 minutes, and 8 seconds, or daily, 20 minutes and 1 second. So essentially, 20 minutes. Still so doable. And here we've got time codes. If you want to jump section by section, feel free. Otherwise, buckle up, and we'll talk about the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes together. Well, let's start in the book of Proverbs. The seminary manual gives us this introduction. The book of Proverbs was written as poetry, and it employs many of the techniques common to Hebraic poetry, vivid imagery, parallelism, and other literary techniques to guide the reader in the quest for wisdom. The introductory verses of the book express this central theme, a wise man will hear and will increase in learning, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's from Proverbs 1, verses 5 and 7. The wisdom contained within the book of Proverbs covers nearly every aspect of life. The Proverbs focus as much on the quirks of human nature as they do on the basic behavior of a righteous person and on man's proper relationship to God. Because the Proverbs address such varied topics, a verse in Proverbs often has no connection to the verses before or after it. However, readers can find within Proverbs many passages that are simple, humorous, profound, and beautiful. One well-known passage tenderly describes the attributes of a righteous woman and declares that she is far more precious than rubies. Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31. And we'll talk more about that later in the lesson. But who wrote the book of Proverbs? The Institute Manual provides this insight. The general title is The Proverbs of Solomon, the Son of David. At several points in the book, however, there are rubrics, or headings, giving the authorship of different sections. Thus, sections are ascribed to Solomon at chapter 10, verse 1, and the wise at chapter 22, verse 17, and chapter 24, verse 23. At chapter 25, verse 1, there is the rubric, These also are Proverbs of Solomon which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. Chapter 30 is headed, The Words of Agur, son of Jacob. And chapter 31 ascribed to King Lemuel, or rather, to his mother. So, it's mostly Solomon, but others contributed too. Yeah, and let's look in Proverbs chapter 1 for the purpose of the Proverbs. Let's take a look at the first four verses. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, 
to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, and judgment, and equity, to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. Hmm, straightforward enough. From the seminary manual, we have this quote from President David O. McKay. This is from April 1968 General Conference. He says, quote, Gaining knowledge is one thing, and applying it is quite another. Wisdom is the right application of knowledge, and true education, the education for which the church stands, is the application of knowledge to the development of a noble and godlike character, end quote. Good counsel. So that's wisdom. Yes, it is. Let's look for what we learn about the blessings of seeking wisdom in the coming chapters. Let's jump to chapter 2 in Proverbs, starting in verse 10. When wisdom entereth into thine heart, and knowledge is pleasant unto thy soul, discretion shall preserve thee, understanding shall keep thee to deliver thee from the way of the evil man, from the man that speaketh froward things, who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice to do evil and delight in the frowardness of the wicked, whose ways are crooked and they froward in their paths. You might have noticed the word froward used multiple times. It means wayward or to go in a direction opposite of what is expected. Perverseness as footnote 14a tells us. Let's look at another section in Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom, and the man that getteth understanding. For the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver, and the gain thereof than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things thou canst desire are not to be compared unto her. Length of days is in her right hand, and in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, and happy is everyone that retaineth her. Skipping down to verse 35, The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the promotion of fools. Wow. Good counsel. Let's go to chapter 4, starting at verse 5. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Forget it not. Neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she shall promote thee. She shall bring thee to honor when thou dost embrace her. She shall give to thine head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory shall she deliver to thee. What an amazing set of promises when we embrace wisdom. When have you seen that seeking wisdom can help us avoid sin and enjoy happiness and peace and honor? Now notice in these verses that wisdom is personified as a woman. She, wisdom, is more precious than rubies. Or, forsake her, wisdom, not. And she, wisdom, shall preserve thee. Yet also in these first nine chapters, folly or foolishness is also personified as a woman. 
In the King James Version, this is usually distinguished as a strange woman or an evil woman. Here's an insight from Robert L. Deffenbaugh. He's a Protestant pastor from Richardson, Texas. In his article, he tells us, quote, In each chapter of this introductory section, we find either Madam Folly, Dame Wisdom, or both. Both the way of wisdom and the way of folly are personified by women. This would be especially relevant in light of the father-to-son instruction which is given in Proverbs. If there is one thing a father should teach his son, it is the kind of woman to pursue and the kind of woman to avoid. Dame Wisdom and Madam Folly are literary tools to teach the young man a lesson on two levels, the literal and the metaphorical, end quote. And as a cherry on top, before we leave chapter 3, we have to mention some of the most famous verses. These are doctoral mastery verses in seminary, but it's also the theme for this year's FSY. That's Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Think for a minute about what that means to trust the Lord but not just to trust the Lord. What does it mean to trust him with all your heart? Have you felt the experience of trusting him with some of your heart, but maybe not willing to give him all? What's it like to lean not to your own understanding? Our own understanding has been with us our whole lives. Sometimes it's difficult to let go of that familiarity and be willing to let God lead the way. And in verse 6, In all thy ways acknowledge him. Is there something in our lives that is keeping us from acknowledging God in all our ways? Are there some ways that we don't acknowledge him? How can we open ourselves up? These verses really emphasize how God is seeking all of us. And when we give all, he shall direct our paths. The Institute Manual includes this great quote from President N. Eldon Tanner from October 1968 General Conference. President Tanner often quoted Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, and on one occasion he said, quote, How much wiser and better it is for man to accept the simple truths of the gospel and to accept as authority God, the creator of the world, and his son Jesus Christ, and to accept by faith those things which he cannot disprove and for which he cannot give a better explanation. He must be prepared to acknowledge that there are certain things, many, many things, that he cannot understand. How can we deny or even disbelieve God when we cannot understand even the simplest things around us? How the leaf functions, what electricity is, what our emotions are, when the spirit enters the body, and what happens to it when it leaves. How can we say that because we do not understand the resurrection, that there is not or cannot be a resurrection? We are admonished to trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. And we are warned, Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. End quote. Such good counsel. Elder Richard G. Scott in the 1995 October General Conference offered this insight. He said, 
Our Father in Heaven has invited you to express your needs, hopes, and desires unto Him. That should not be done in a spirit of negotiation, but rather as a willingness to obey His will, no matter what direction that takes. His invitation, Ask and ye shall receive, does not assure that you will get what you want. It does guarantee that if worthy, you will get what you need, as judged by a Father that loves you perfectly, who wants your eternal happiness even more than you do. I love that. So in Proverbs chapters 4 through 9, these chapters encourage us to seek wisdom, warn against associating with those who are immoral, and strongly condemn a prideful heart, dishonesty, murder, hard-heartedness, slander, gossip, and contention. Let's read those six things the Lord hates as listed in Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 16. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. Now wait, didn't he say six things? But then he said seven. The Institute Manual offers this quick insight. Quote, this recalling of what has been said in order to correct it, as by an afterthought, is a literary device often used by Hebrew writers to add beauty and power to expressions and to convey the idea of completeness, end quote. So that was deliberately done. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven. You'll see that in other places in both the Old and New Testament. Nice. Good clarification. It might be worth discussing why these seven things were mentioned specifically. How do each of these vices keep us from coming closer to God or inhibiting others from coming to him? How do these harm society? And what would society look like if these seven things were removed from it? Hmm. Going forward, let's sample some other Proverbs that may be applicable to us today. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4. He becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent maketh rich. Verse 12, hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth all sins. Verse 17, he is in the way of life that keepeth instruction, but he that refuseth reproof erreth. Nice. Let's take a look at some in Proverbs chapter 13, starting in verse 1. A wise son heareth his father's instruction, but a scorner heareth not rebuke. And verse 7. There is that maketh himself rich, yet hath nothing. There is that maketh himself poor, yet hath great riches. Hmm. And then in verse 10, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Like that one. Yeah. The Institute Manual has a great quote from Elder Marvin J. Ashton. This comes from April 1978 General Conference. He says, quote, when one considers the bad feeling and the unpleasantness caused by contention, it is well to ask, why do I participate? 
If we are really honest with ourselves, our answers may be something like, when I argue and am disagreeable, I do not have to change myself. It gives me a chance to get even. I am unhappy and I want others to be miserable too. I can feel self-righteous. In this way, I get my ego built up. I don't want others to forget how much I know. Whatever the real reason is, it is important to recognize that we choose our behavior. At the root of this issue is the age-old problem of pride. Only by pride cometh contention. If Satan can succeed in creating in us habits of arguing, quarreling, and contention, it is easier then for him to bind us with the heavier sins which can destroy our eternal lives. A contentious spirit can affect almost any phase of our lives. An angry letter written in haste can haunt us, sometimes for years. A few ill-advised words spoken in hate can destroy a marriage or a personal friendship or impede community progress, End quote. That's really nice. Let's take a look also in chapter 13, a couple more. How about verse 15? Good understanding giveth favor, but the way of transgressors is hard. Verse 20, he that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Hmm. Here's a famous one from Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. The Come Follow Me manual includes this great quote from Elder W. Craig Zwick of the 70. This is from April 2014 General Conference. He says, quote, A soft answer consists of a reasoned response, disciplined words from a humble heart. It does not mean we never speak directly or that we compromise doctrinal truth. Words that may be firm in information can be soft in spirit, end quote. Boy, that is good and useful counsel for today. Elder Marvin J. Ashton gave additional counsel about controlling one's tongue. This is from the 1976 April General Conference. He said, Too often we use communication periods as occasions to tell, dictate, plead, or threaten. Nowhere in the broadest sense should communication in the family be used to impose, command, or embarrass. In family discussions, differences should not be ignored, but should be weighed and evaluated calmly. One's point or opinion usually is not as important as a healthy, continuing relationship. Courtesy and respect in listening and responding during discussions are basic in proper dialogue. How important it is to know how to disagree with another's point of view without being disagreeable. How important it is to have discussion periods ahead of decisions. Jones Stevens wrote, I have learned that the head does not hear anything until the heart has listened, and that what the heart knows today, the head will understand tomorrow. Nice. I like that. Yeah. Let's look on in chapter 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Verse 16. Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Oh, I like that one. Mm. Verse 20. 
A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish man despiseth his mother. Verse 26, The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but the words of the pure are pleasant words. Verse 32, He that refuseth instruction despiseth his own soul, but he that heareth reproof getteth understanding. I like that one. That's an interesting use of the phrase despiseth his own soul. When we refuse instruction, we don't grow spiritually. And the end result of what our spiritual development could be is inhibited without listening to reproof, getting understanding, and of course, as the authors have been saying, that leads to wisdom. Let's take a look in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. Hmm. Verse 18, pride goeth before destruction, and an haughty spirit before a fall. There's a well-known one, great one. Yes, and then in verse 32, he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. You know what's interesting? As I read these, I think, you know, humans just aren't that different. Thousands of years between these writings and us today, and yet they face the same kinds of challenges in being human as we face. So this is good and timely counsel. Let me do one more in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. There's a great one, and also a well-known one. Yeah. From the Institute Manual, they include a quote from then-elder Gordon B. Hinckley from the October 1978 General Conference. He says, quote, It is so obvious that the great good and the terrible evil in the world today are the sweet and the bitter fruits of the rearing of yesterday's children. As we train a new generation, so will the world be in a few years. If you are worried about the future, then look to the upbringing of your children, end quote. So good. Mm-hmm. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. From the Institute Manual, we have this great quote from President Marion G. Romney. This comes from April 1980 General Conference which, by the way, was the sesquicentennial of the restoration of the church. Oh, very nice. He says, quote, The great overall struggle in the world today is, as it has always been, for the souls of men. Every soul is personally engaged in the struggle, and he makes his fight with what is in his mind. In the final analysis, the battleground is, for each individual, within himself. Inevitably, he gravitates toward the subjects of his thoughts. Ages ago, the wise man thus succinctly stated this great truth. As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. If we would escape the lusts of the flesh and build for ourselves and our children great and noble characters, we must keep in our minds and in their minds true and righteous principles for our thoughts and their thoughts to dwell upon. We must not permit our minds to become surfeited with the interests things, and practices of the world about us. To do so is tantamount to adopting and going along with them. If we would avoid adopting the evils of the world, 
we must pursue a course which will daily feed our minds with and call them back to the things of the Spirit, end quote. So good and so timely. Mm-hmm. Let's jump ahead to some more Proverbs. How about Proverbs chapter 27, starting in verse 1? Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Let another man praise thee, and not thine own mouth, a stranger, and not thine own lips. And then in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, Where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Now, I should point out that this is one of my favorite Proverbs, and one of the reasons why is that it's a great example of how multiple translations can really help enrich our understanding sometimes. If you went to a place like BibleHub.com, we've suggested that before, you could just type in your scripture reference in a Google search, and BibleHub will be one of them, and it will give you a list of that verse in different translations. Let me just show you a few and why I think it's so exciting. We just read the King James Version, but look at the English Standard Version, where there is no prophetic vision. It clarifies what kind of vision we're talking about. So where there's no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. That's how it interpreted what the King James called the people perish. Why do they perish? Because they cast off restraint. They have no self-control. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Now, the New International Version makes it even more clear at the beginning. It says, where there is no revelation. What a great testimony in this proverb about the importance of prophetic vision and revelation. Because when we don't have it, the people cast off restraint. The people perish. But the Holman Christian Standard Bible, I really like how they describe what happens with no revelation. It says, without revelation, people run wild. So it really enriched my understanding of that verse by remembering that prophetic revelation, modern revelation, is essential to keep the people from running wild, to keep them from losing self-control and leading to their downfall. But wisdom, blessings, and happiness come from keeping the law. Nice. That's really great. Well, let's skip ahead to the famous Proverbs chapter 31. This is the last chapter. We talked about this at the beginning of the lesson. Let's start in verse 10. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. The Preach My Gospel manual tells us, quote, Virtue originates in our innermost thoughts and desires. It is a pattern of thought and behavior based on high moral standards. Since the Holy Ghost does not dwell in unclean tabernacles, virtue is prerequisite to receiving the Spirit's guidance. What you choose to think and do when you are alone and you believe no one is watching is a strong measure of your virtue. Virtuous people are clean and pure spiritually. They focus on righteous, uplifting thoughts and put unworthy thoughts that lead to inappropriate actions out of their minds. They obey God's commandments and follow the counsel of church leaders. They pray for the strength to resist temptation and do what is right. They quickly repent of any sins or wrongdoings. They live worthy of a temple recommend. Quote. That is a great definition of virtue. 
Now, in Proverbs 31, in the coming verses, the author expands who a virtuous woman is. Let's take a look in verse 11. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeketh wool and flax, and worketh willingly with her hands. She is like the merchant's ships. She bringeth her food from afar. She riseth also while it is yet night, and giveth meat to her household, and a portion to her maidens. She considereth a field, and buyeth it. With the fruit of her hands she planteth a vineyard. She girdeth her loins with strength, and strengtheneth her arms. She perceiveth that her merchandise is good. Her candle goeth not out by night. She layeth her hands to the spindle, and her hands hold the distaff. She stretcheth out her hand to the poor, yea, she reaches forth her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She maketh herself coverings of tapestry, her clothing is silk and purple. Her husband is known in the gates, when he sitteth among the elders of the land. She maketh fine linen, and selleth it, and delivereth girdles unto the merchant. Strength and honor are her clothing." and she shall rejoice in time to come. She openeth her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. She looketh well to the ways of her household, and eateth not the bread of idleness. Her children arise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praiseth her. Many daughters have done virtuously, but thou excellest them all. Favor is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruits of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. In the 2005 movie version of Jane Austen's book, Pride and Prejudice, Mr. Darcy gives a list of the traits of an accomplished woman. Elizabeth Bennet responds that if such a woman exists... Quote, she would certainly be a fearsome thing to behold, close quote. <laughs> That's what I was thinking of when I read that list. What a fearsome, beautiful, and divine woman that would be. What wonderful traits to have. Sister Julie B. Beck, who was the former Relief Society general president, spoke of the qualities a righteous woman should seek after. This comes from April 2004 General Conference. She said, quote, What is a mother heart, and how is one acquired? We learn about some of those qualities in the scriptures. To paraphrase Proverbs, who can find a woman with a mother heart? For her price is far above rubies. She worketh willingly with her hands. With the fruit of her hands she planteth a vineyard. She stretcheth out her hand to the poor. Strength and honor are her clothing. She openeth her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. She looketh well to the way of her household, and eateth not the bread of idleness. A woman with a mother heart has a testimony of the restored gospel, and she teaches the principles of the gospel without equivocation. She is keeping sacred covenants made in holy temples. Her talents and skills are shared unselfishly, She gains as much education as her circumstances will allow, improving her mind and spirit 
with the desire to teach what she learns to the generations who follow her, end quote. So insightful. Now, President James E. Faust taught how priesthood holders can apply Proverbs 31.28. He says, How should those who bear the priesthood treat their wives and other women in their family? Our wives need to be cherished. They need to hear their husbands call them blessed. And the children need to hear their fathers generously praise their mothers. The Lord values his daughters just as much as he does his sons. In marriage, neither is superior. Each has a different primary and divine responsibility. Chief among these different responsibilities for wives is the calling of motherhood. I firmly believe that our dear sisters enjoy a special spiritual enrichment, which is inherent in their natures. President Spencer W. Kimball stated, To be a righteous woman during the winding up scenes on this earth before the second coming of our Savior is an especially noble calling. Other institutions in society may falter and even fail, but the righteous woman can help to save the home, which may be the last and only sanctuary some mortals know in the midst of storm and strife. Hmm. That was from the October 1993 General Conference. A great admonition. And that takes us to the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's take our introduction from the seminary manual. It says, The name Ecclesiastes is a translation of the Hebrew word koheleth, which means one who convenes an assembly, or simply a preacher. Throughout this book, the writer presents a series of questions in search of the purpose of life. The book of Ecclesiastes is unique because although the preacher is a believer, he often poses questions and makes statements as if he were not. Everything that he says, therefore, must be taken in context of his final conclusion in Ecclesiastes 12, 13-14, that all of our works in this life will one day be judged by God. The teachings of this book seem to be directed at individuals who do not believe in God, or at least are not yet fully committed to Him. The preacher presents questions and statements that many of these individuals may feel inclined to agree with, but then he helps them to see how much purpose and meaning can come into our lives when we seek to live in accordance with God's will. So, who is the preacher? Well, technically, we don't know for sure. The first few verses give us a hint, though. So let's start in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Hmm. So the preacher is a son of David, king in Jerusalem. That's not to say that the preacher is king. The title king in Jerusalem belongs to David. Now, David had a lot of sons, too, and before you draw too rash a conclusion, son may simply mean a descendant. That's about all we know on the matter. I think it's David's not well-known son, Fred. Fred the preacher. Yep, Fred the preacher. That's possible. Okay. Just saying. Okay, going on in verse 2, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? Note that footnote 2b indicates the vanity the preacher is talking about. Empty, fleeting, unsubstantial. 
Yeah, keep an eye out for that word vanity. It shows up a lot in Ecclesiastes. Yeah, the phrase under the sun is just another way of saying during mortality. So all is vanity and under the sun essentially means everything is empty, temporary, or meaningless during mortality. What a nice way to start the book. (laughs) Kind of a bleak perspective. Yes, yes. The seminary manual gives this insight. It says, The writer of Ecclesiastes often wrote from the perspective of someone who had little to no understanding of the plan of salvation. This perspective can help us recognize that people waste much of their life focusing on pursuits that end when they die. So how does the preacher propose we find meaning in life? Let's take a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I said in mine heart, Go to now, I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, It is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. So did his folly lead to wisdom? Let's go on in verse 4. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kind of fruits. I made me pools of water, to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens, and had servants born in my house. Also I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold, and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers, and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. So many people today take this course to find meaning in life. Did it work for the preacher? Let's take a look at verse 11. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. So we have these two different approaches. Either you can be idle and wasteful, and that led to emptiness, or you can have all this worldly success, and that again led to emptiness. In Ecclesiastes chapters 3 through 10, the preacher wrote that even though good and bad things happen to all of us, and even though one day we will all die, we can do many things to make our mortal life better before it ends. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 became very well known after 1965 when a group called The Birds set the first eight verses to music. For our younger listeners, you can ask your grandparents, wow, about it. <laughs> anyway, here's a short sample.
These verses are a poetic rendering of the first line, To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven. The point is that there is an order and structure to one's mortal life and the world around us. Let's look for an insight in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Let's start in verse 9. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Hmm. That's one reason to be so thankful for the gospel and how it allows us to have a community in which to try to progress. Mm -hmm. Let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 10. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? Let's take a look at another insight in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 9. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. It's an interesting thing, that perspective. Was there a time before when we were happier? If so, why? Why don't we examine those times in our lives when we're at our best and then try to do the things that we did there that brought those blessings? And let's jump ahead to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, starting in verse 11. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner do evil an hundred times, and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him. But it shall not be well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he feareth not before God. Let's skip ahead to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting in verse 10. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill. But time and chance happeneth to them all. This is an interesting bit of profound wisdom and something that should help us put things into perspective. Have any of us known someone who may have wealth but doesn't seem to have earned it? Or have we known someone who is industrious and hardworking but experiencing hard financial times? As mortals, sometimes we draw some rash conclusions about how this world works. The preacher reminds us that intelligence, skill, wisdom, or strength guarantee nothing. Time and chance happen to them all. From the Institute Manual, it includes this great quote from Brigham Young in the Journal of Discourses. He says, quote, The race is not to the swift, nor riches to men of wisdom. Do not fret, nor be so anxious about property, nor think when you have gathered treasures, they alone will produce joy and comfort, for it is not so. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, 
nor riches to men of wisdom. The Lord gives the increase. He makes rich whom he pleases. You may inquire, why not make us rich? Perhaps because we would not know what to do with the riches. End quote. I like that. Excellent insight. Well, how about Ecclesiastes 10, verse 18? By much slothfulness, the building decayeth, and through idleness of the hands, the house droppeth through. And what did the preacher want young people to understand about life? Let's take a look in Ecclesiastes 11, verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart, and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Now, in the first few verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the writer reiterated that everyone will one day die. In verse 7 we read, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. From the Preach My Gospel manual, we read, quote, Death does not change our personality or our desires for good or evil. Those who chose to obey God in this life live in a state of happiness, peace, and rest from troubles and care. Those who chose not to obey in this life and did not repent live in a state of unhappiness. In the spirit world, the gospel is preached to those who did not obey the gospel or have the opportunity to hear it while on earth. We remain in the spirit world until we are resurrected. End quote. Such a good clarification from a restoration understanding of the next life. Let's go on with what the preacher has to say in Ecclesiastes 12, starting in verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Elder Joseph B. Worthlin in the 1998 April General Conference had this to say, We understand that we will live a post-mortal life of infinite duration and that we will determine the kind of life it will be by our thoughts and actions in mortality. Mortality is very brief, but immeasurably important. That understanding helps us make wise decisions in the many choices of our daily lives. Seeing life from an eternal perspective helps us focus our limited mortal energies on the things that matter most. By virtue of the Savior's atoning sacrifice, we all will be resurrected. Each of us will stand before the judgment bar of the great Jehovah and be rewarded according to our deeds in mortality. If we make every earthly decision with this judgment in mind, we will have used our mortal probation wisely, and its days will give us peace in this life and eternal life in the world to come. Well, that's it for the poetry books of the Old Testament. Oh, hey, wait a minute. What about the Song of Solomon? Well, the Song of Solomon is a collection of poetry and songs of love and affection. The Joseph Smith translation manuscript contains the note that, quote, the songs of Solomon are not inspired writings, close quote. That's true. In fact, Elder Bruce R. McConkie gave it harsher treatment. At a CES symposium on August 17, 1984, he said, 
the Song of Solomon is biblical trash. The defense of this book being included in the Bible that is most often given is that the love depicted in the book is symbolic of the love of God to his people. Now, I've read this book several times. To me, that's a pretty big stretch. If that's true, it makes me uncomfortable to read it. Yes, exactly. But if you've ever wondered why we never cover the Song of Solomon in Sunday school, seminary, or institute, that's why. God is not mentioned or implied in these writings. Just two people in love. But it is a short book, and if you really want to know, it would take you 17 minutes, 14 seconds to read the whole book. But make sure you read Proverbs and Ecclesiastes first. That's going to provide better value for you. Agreed. Now, this is the end of the second grouping of books in the Old Testament. We finished the Law, or the Torah, when we finished Deuteronomy. This marks the end of the writings, or the Ketuvim. And remember, Christians subdivided the writings into two parts. The first is the historical writings, including Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. The second part is the poetic writings, including Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Next week, we start with the third and last portion of the Old Testament, the prophets, or the Nevi'im. And we start with, perhaps, the greatest of them all, Isaiah. That is going to be so exciting. We're looking forward to it. Now, both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are books that would benefit from reading and studying again and again. There's a lot of things to contemplate and a lot of gems to find, but it takes some work. Well, and one of the great things about it, too, is that unlike some of the other books that we've read so far, the poetry can really speak to your heart. It's hard sometimes to put into words the feelings that we have, both positive and negative. Perhaps you'll find a voice in the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, that really speak to you, where the author puts into words the way that you feel. If so, make sure to mark those and share them with people you know. Keep reading your scriptures, and we'll look forward to talking to you more about them in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans.